Murdoch University is committed to teaching and research excellence to support industry and the betterment of society. This podcast series, supported by Minter Ellison, shares insight into the excellent research programs academics at Murdoch are running today. A self-proclaimed country girl and the first in her family to get a degree, Dr. Susan Ledger understands the critical impact a teacher can make on a student. Now, as head of education in the College of Science, Health, Engineering and Education at Murdoch University. She has been able to put her wide experience of teaching in rural areas and around the world into training the next generation of teachers. She's an educator who has a passion for connecting people, places and projects. In a podcast for this series, Susan talks about her many experiences and the innovations in teaching and learning that still get her excited. My name's Sue Ledger. I've got the responsibility for preparing future teachers and to inspire them to do research on teaching. It's been a long journey, that's for sure. Education has provided me lots of opportunities, which probably as a country girl, um, not everyone has that access or that opportunity. So it's been a a long history and I've just been made aware that I'm now the new professor over at Newcastle. University, head of Newcastle University. So all of my work to date and all of the work at Murdoch University have put me in a full professorial position. So I can't wait to go back to my Bunbury School, um, Newton Moore, and sort of talk to them about that and seizing the opportunity and taking the opportunity as country kids to um, just to show that you can do stuff. I am a country girl. I'm a nomadic country girl. My grandfather was Norwegian. He was a Norwegian whaler and he jumped ship in Albany fell in love with my nan and then scared that he'd be caught, they moved up to Katanning and proceeded to have seven gorgeous young daughters. I think nan said there's no more after number seven. So, and that's where, so mum was the second youngest of that group and she was a twin and she, out of all the girls, was the only one to marry outside of Katanning or that local region. So she married a um, Kimberley man of English and Afghan descent. And they both had this wanderlust about them. I think it came down from both of their grandparents. And so they kept moving. They moved, they had three children. They moved from Katanning across to Collie. And then we resided in Bunbury at the end, going to a Catholic school and then more the new state school. Once we, once the Catholic school went co-ed, my father said, you're going to a state co-ed, not the Catholic co-ed. And look, I had a fantastic time. I was very sporty. I was a counsellor at school and I just loved school. So that opened up opportunities. I think in the country in those days, it was difficult if you weren't sporty, Um, you were either academic or sporty, and I was lucky and blessed to be able to do both. So I was able to have, you know, my foot in each of those camps, so to speak. I was one of the few that went off to um, the city for education. Bunbury now has its own campus, university, and... um, yeah, it did provide opportunity. I would have never have dreamt when I was a 17-year-old country girl at a tough state school in Bunbury that I'd be taking on a full professorial position at Newcastle teaching the next generation of teachers. So I was there at Norsma for a few years and met my husband there. And he'd had some experience teaching in Aboriginal schools and said we should go and have that adventure too. So we applied to go to Kimberley's and ended up in Bullsbrook, which is the Pierce Air Base not quite up in the Kimberleys, but we had a great couple of years there. It was a district high school. And then we finally got posted to the Kimberleys and 
worked at Luma Aboriginal. It was an Aboriginal mission at that stage. It's not now. It's part of the department. And it was a fantastic experience, which opened our eyes to that whole culture and also that amazing landscape up in the Kimberleys. So then after the Kimberleys, we went back. We were rewarded for all of our country service and got Belga, which is a very multicultural centre here in Perth. So I've been lucky each of those places. I've had amazing leadership who've helped me sort of have high expectations and move to the next level. So then after Belga, we went off to Cocos Islands, which is at that stage was just taken over by the Australian government. It's a Malay community, 99% Muslim community. And that was just an amazing time. My husband's a surfer, I'm a water lover, and I love, you know, I'm a language learner. I would have to go across every day to, across the lagoon. It was a complete atoll. So my daily job was from Cocos Island to Leonora, catching a ferry across to the Malay community and teaching over there. And It was an amazing time. Look, I think when people think about regional areas, they think that they're not, it's going to be isolated, they're not going to get a lot of support. And in many cases that's true, but because the department knows about that, they mitigate it against and provide lots of professional development, lots of support structures like the role I played when I was out in Leonora, supporting the new graduates. We have transition um, strategies for people moving into those areas now for graduates. So everyone's basically assigned a mentor and they can contact them any time of the day. So there's some great initiatives in that. I think it differs in many cases. I'm looking at my niece who lives in a country, a regional country town. Her whole schooling, she's had a first year out teacher. So for 10 years, she's had an inexperienced teacher teaching her. And she's had six principals during that time, each of which were first year out principals. So the problem continues to exist that we have probably our most inexperienced teachers and inexperienced leaders in some of our less than desirable regional centres. We don't have problems getting people going to Margaret River or Exmouth, etc. But it's all those other places. There's been report after report over a long period of time to try to fix it. I think the only way of fixing it is to change the mindset of it and put our best teachers out there, have strategies that get some of our best teachers out there, even on a two-year rotation, so that our students out in those areas have really good quality teachers out there continually that can support the new grads, not just for once off, you know, fly and fly out visits, but for that ongoing support that you need as you become a really good teacher. I think we have to start with the fact that education is shared responsibility. I think if we shift away from thinking about the gap and start thinking about the people and who they are in the context and building on that, you know, Chris Sarrett, the Institute sort of approach, is that we will start getting some strong outcomes. We're starting to see it now, even though it's not big. I think having a systemic approach to it, like Chris Sowers Institute, having committed people, having high quality Indigenous students. I mean, I'm just reading some facts here that we've got few Indigenous teachers in our Australian workforce. Um, we know we've got 5.3% of students in our schools who are Indigenous, yet we only have 1% of teachers who are Indigenous. So we need to get those role models in front of them. And I think that's, you know, where Chris Sarah and the Strongest Smarter Institute is really making some headway. And we'll, instead of having multiple programs, having one or two really strong, focused national programs will make a difference. After Belga, after I went to Belga and went to Cocos Islands and Leonora, came back, 
I was a literacy officer in the Department of Education. They were rolling out the languages program in the mid-90s and my job was to support um, schools to get that out, which is great. And then I followed up with First Steps. It's a literacy program that took me to England and we taught the English how to teach English, which I thought was quite ironic. But it was a lovely two years of our lives and we went to all the universities around and delivered from those university bases um, and throughout Wales and Ireland and England. It was at that point when I sat an interview for Murdoch University to be a literacy and language specialist at Murdoch and being interviewed for this job, which I just would love, you know, would aspire to be, and I was successful in that, which brought us back to Western Australia. My husband's in education as well. That was my first stint at Murdoch was from 2000, year 2000. I was there for three years. I um, finished my master's there, and then my husband got a position overseas in West Papua, and I thought that that would be a good time for me to do my PhD. So I enrolled at UWA and did my PhD and spent my time whilst in Papua, joining my two loves of international education and rural remote education and looked at international schools throughout the Indonesian archipelago and how they were implemented in remote locations and just tried to find that intersection. And there's lots of similarities between rural and remote education and international schooling. The international school system is now the size of the Australian school system in terms of numbers of students and numbers of schools. So it's just, it's nice to have, I always like to be involved in a range of things, but my, they're my two loves, international schooling and rural and remote schooling. The global perspective for what I do, as well as what I want my students to be well aware of, is vital, you know, particularly now with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that acts as a framework for basically most organisations, including education. So we can look at global issues at a local level and we can address local issues by gaining experience from the global field. I mean, never has that been more evident than this year in 2020 with the pandemic, so that that shared responsibility, our world is much smaller. The responses to COVID has been quite different from different um, nations, from different states even. So what that provides us with is, is a learning experience for future pandemics. How do we respond? Every experience is helping us to learn and that's iterative approach to learning so that next time it happens, we're better prepared. The achievements for me, look, they'd have to be personal and professional achievements if I could classify them into that. So to get my PhD was an absolute achievement. I was in West Papua, I had a new baby, I was working and I was studying in a very remote, difficult location. Um, the second year I was there, we had, we had two schools and one of those, all of the teachers at the other school were shot by a local military thing that happened and evacuated. And my husband had to sort of fly in a helicopter up to the other site and sort of get that set up. So we had all of these interruptions to our, my study and I just think that was a pretty significant achievement to get or survive that and to have, you know, my PhD um, and... Yeah, so that would be my personal achievement, as well as, you know, of course, getting married and having two lovely children. But the PhD was a major milestone for me, and that also opened up opportunities because I knew my career was going to be in higher education, and without that these days you just can't get an appointment. So then if I look at my professional contributions, and particularly in Western Australia, two major initiatives, my 12-month internship 
10 years ago when they were trying to raise the quality of teaching in Australia. We won a government grant. I led UWA, Curtin and Murdoch to run a program called the West Australian Combined Universities Training Schools Program. It was a 12-month internship, high quality, high calibre students within it chosen from each of the universities, particular schools chosen as the sites to support these students. And they had 12 months working alongside a full, you know, a teacher. Amazing program. And we graduated 50 of these top students each year for three years. And it was great success. And there's been lots of written about it. We've done some research on it. Continue that on today. Funding stopped, though, like with most initiatives, and that's unfortunate. I think that process would be better, um, better looked at. So Murdoch continued that, though. We've now been the longest-standing 12-month internship program happening in Western Australia, highly regarded, 95% sort of um, employment rate, and, um, and now the department actually funds people in that program and other universities are now doing 12-month programs, same thing. So they're particularly funding them in areas of need like secondary science and mathematics. So the 12-month internship, I feel, is one of my legacies in Western Australia. And the other one, which is an exciting thing for a 50-year-old you know, woman, is that I was the person that brought simulation into initial teacher education. Murdoch has been significant for me. It's been a significant place of learning, but also a significant place of opportunity. Murdoch's underpinned when it was in the 1970s. It was green, sustainable, well ahead of its time. Um, It has a soul. Unfortunately, over time, it tried to lose that and try to copy other people, but it's now come back to its roots. And it's gone back to it being green and sustainable, looking at, you know, food futures and health futures and all the things that it was known for and originated as. And that soul of Murdoch seems to get into it. doesn't matter who you talk to. If you've worked at Murdoch, there is there something about it that is grounding. It's based on diversity and equity. There are many students who've had opportunity at Murdoch that probably wouldn't have had opportunity in other universities. And those people have just grabbed those opportunities and, you know, reached for the stars. Chris Sarr is one of those. And, you know, we've got many alumni um, out there. The connection with Murdoch is the same as those connections that you want to develop with schools and other universities. You want to have that sense of belonging, the sense that you're contributing. And if we can provide a relationship, a personal relationship with the University of Murdoch certainly being provided me a personal relationship. People will give back and you can draw on them when times are tough. And that seems to be the case here. Everyone helps everyone. When there are times of difficulty, we all rally together and help move forward. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is sponsored by leading law firm Minter Ellison and produced by the Centre for Stories. I'm Rita Sagar.